Some time later, God tested Abram and he said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abram got up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, in the distance, he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abram took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father! Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abram built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abram, Abram, here am I, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have withheld from me your son, your only son. Abram looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called called to Abram from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abram returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abram stayed in Beersheba. Let's pray. Lord, uh, speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, call us to Christ, enable us to trust in him, to see him clearly uh, and to see your great provision in him, for we ask it in his name, amen. Well, Craig Sylvie, uh, in his wonderful novel, Jasper Jones, uh, in, in that novel, Mad Jack Lionel, lives in the weather-worn cottage on the edge of town. Uh, No one's ever seen him. 
But the story goes that he murdered a young girl some years ago. But among the children of the local town, the great test of courage is to steal something from the house or from the yard of Mad Jack Lionel. Charlie Buckton, the main character of the book, says, Rocks and flowers and assorted debris are all rushed back proudly from the high dry grass sprawl of his front yard to be examined with wonder. But the rarest and most revered feat is to snatch a peach from the large tree that grows by the flank of the cottage like a zombie hand bursting from a grave. To pilfer and to eat a peach from the property of Mad Jack Lionel assures you instant royalty. The stone of the peach is kept as a souvenir of heroics and is universally admired and envied. In every coming-of-age story, there is the quintessential madman who lives in the weather-worn cottage on the edge of town. And in every coming-of-age story, there's a ridiculous, arbitrary and contrived ritual that uh, the kids of the town have to go through as a kind of test of courage, a test of bravery. Well, such tests are not relegated merely to the pages of novels. Tests like that... uh, are found in our world. Football teams endlessly rehearse the same line every week. They say the same things. We're really looking forward to testing ourselves against the best team in the competition. We live in a world of tests, tests of courage, tests of skill, tests of learning. And in this chapter, God is testing Abraham. The chapter begins with those exact words. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. But the test that God calls Abraham to to kind of face is a shocking test. He orders Abraham to sacrifice his son. Verse 2, Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It seems barbaric. God hates child sacrifice. That's clear in the rest uh, of the Old Testament. Not to mention God had promised to Abraham that he would give him a son. And not just any son, but the son Isaac in particular. Isaac was the promised son and, and now God is saying, sacrifice that child to me. What's going on? What are we to make of God's shocking command to sacrifice, for Abraham to sacrifice his son. Well, the passage tells us what we're to make of it right at the very beginning. We're to understand it as a test. God is not interested in Abraham killing his son. That becomes, later, that becomes clear later on because God doesn't actually let him go through with it. God stops him. God is testing Abraham to see whether Abraham trusts God. God wanted to know what was in Abraham's heart. He says later in verse 12, Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God wasn't testing Abraham in the sense of trying to trip him up, but in the sense of trying to prove the genuineness of his faith. Often in the Bible we see God putting people to the test. So in Exodus 16.4, God says that he will test his people to see whether or not they will walk in my law or not. Or in Deuteronomy 8.2, when Moses is reflecting back on the years in the wilderness that the people uh, spent, uh, 
Moses describes that, that period by saying, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Or Psalm 11 verse 5, the Lord examines, he tests the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. Or the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is, God had sent these trials on these people, on these Christians, to test, to see the genuineness of their faith so that it could be plain to see by their bearing up under suffering that they really did trust God. When you put gold in a smelter, it burns away the impurities and it leaves behind pure gold. If there's no gold in the metal, sort of when you put it in the smelter, there'll be nothing left at the end. So refining gold does, actually does two things at the same time. Or, or putting it in a smelter, it does two things. It purifies, it refines it, and it also proves it to be genuine. And God does the same thing with our faith. He tests it, and at the same moment he refines it and proves it to be true. It's merciful of God to test our faith because it proves our faith is genuine and not fake. It proves that to God, God can see it, and it proves that to us and to to others as well. Sometimes you might ask or somebody might come up to you and, and ask you, how can I know that I really believe in Jesus? How can I know that I really trust Jesus? And the answer to that question is, well, one of the answers is that God's testing shows. God's testing reveals to us the quality, the nature of our faith. God tests our faith in lots of ways. He tests our faith through difficult circumstances. So what can God take away from you and you'll still trust in him? Can he take away your job or your spouse or a child? or your health. God took away everything from Job, and Job could still say, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What do you say when God takes things away? Or if you don't say it out loud, what do you think? What you say and think demonstrates what you believe. (laughs) Maybe you say, Why are you doing this to me? I'm serving you. Well, that says something about what we believe, doesn't it? I deserve good because I've done something for you. What we say and think in difficult circumstances reveals what we believe. God tests our faith through difficult circumstances. He also tests our faith through difficult commands. When God says no sex outside a marriage between a husband and a wife, 
Will you trust him that that really is a better life? When God says, don't steal, that a life without stealing is a, is a good life, will you believe him? Will you believe that a life without stealing films and music is a better life? Tragically, most people don't believe that. A life without cheating your taxes is a better life. Everybody says, you can't survive in business if you pay the government what they, are, what, what they ask. Will you trust in God that you can honour the government and make ends meet? When God says to be generous, will you really believe that you can give away 10, 20, 30% of your income? And still be happy. That you could live a life with a 34 centimetre TV. Imagine. Like the old days. Do you believe that God's ways are better than our ways? What you do proves what you believe. God tests our faith through difficult circumstances and difficult commands. He also tests our faith through improbable commands. That is, ones that just seem so ridiculously unlikely. Like, preach the gospel and people will be saved. Improbable commands like, if you say something, if you share the gospel with a friend, even though you stumble through it, someone might actually be converted. If you invite someone to church, they might actually come. And they might keep coming. And they might come to faith. Or when God says that his power is made perfect in weakness, do you really believe that God can turn your weakness into his powerful strength? Oh, but I'm so much weaker than everybody else. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God tests our faith in lots of different ways. But it's actually quite silly to think that all God wants from us is just a little bit of uh, gear from our favourite hobby or a little bit of money or a little bit of our time. There's only one thing that God wants from us that really proves the genuineness of our faith that really proves that we trust and follow Jesus. That one thing that he wants from us is our life. Whoever wants to keep their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake will keep it. In fact, maybe God's command to Abraham isn't that outrageous after all. God says to Abraham, you choose me or Isaac. And God says to you, to me, you choose me or that thing, me or that relationship, me or that job, me or that sin, me or that life dream. What will you suffer to lose in order to follow Jesus? God demanded Isaac's life, Jesus demands ours. I was listening to a talk this week by David Cook, 
the former principal of SMBC, and he was recounting how he was, he'd spent some time in England, uh, and he met up with a young student from Cambridge University. And this uh, student was talking uh, about his plans and his plans for his career. And David Cook said to him, Who's been discipling you? Who told you you had a career? You don't have a career. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. Your life doesn't belong to you. Who told you that? A friend of mine became a Christian. I'm sure I've told this story before. He was a keen kite surfer. And shortly after he became a Christian, he sold all his kite surfing gear because for him, kite surfing was an idol. He literally had spent his life chasing the wind, as he said. And he later ended up buying a whole lot of gear back again. And I always thought to myself, I wonder if he was just a bit hasty selling all that stuff, you know, I always thought, ah, you know, would have saved a lot of money not to do that. And he ended up getting it back in the end. But as I thought about it this week, I thought to myself, no, I, perhaps God was testing him. Perhaps God was saying to him, at that point in his life, as he'd come to faith, what are you willing to give up to follow me? I think that happens a lot of the time when people really come to faith. They do extreme things. I think God is testing people to see what it is that they'll really do in following Jesus. God was calling him to see, testing him to see what mattered more, God or his favourite hobby. Abraham got his son back and my friend got his hobby back as well but not before God had tested him to see what he was willing to suffer. And God might be calling you to give up something for a time as well. He might not be calling you to give, up for the, give it up for the rest of your life. He may be doing that too. But now at this time, he might be saying, what will you, what will you do? What will you give up in order to love my son? course, God sometimes tests our faith and it doesn't prove to be genuine. Sometimes God tests someone, asks them to give up something to follow Christ and they don't give it up. And that's very sad to see. To see someone so tightly wedded to what they have or own or what they have set their heart on, to see them so tightly wedded to that that they can't give it up to follow Jesus. It's, it's like the rich young ruler who went away from Jesus sad. Sorry. It's just such a, such a tragedy when people can't give the, the things of this world up to follow Jesus. But that wasn't what happened to Abraham. He trusted God. As one person wrote, God's test didn't break him, 
but it brought him to the summit of his lifelong relationship with God. God is a testing God. And here in Genesis 22, he tested Abraham to prove his faith. Well, what did Abraham believe? What was it about God that Abraham knew that enabled him to give it up? It's a great tragedy when people don't do it. Well, what did Abraham know? What do you need to know so that you can give up everything to follow Jesus? It's hard to imagine what Abraham must have known about God that enabled him to do what he, or to, to, to prepare him to do what he was going to do. The shock, the outrage, and the confusion. Sacrifice your own son. But God, you'd promised him to me. We've waited 14 years for a son, and now you want me to kill him. And yet, he was willing to do it. God's command, the shocking nature of God's command is one thing. The courage, the faith of Abraham is something else. Despite the outrageous nature of what God was calling him to do, this chapter gives us a glimpse of Abraham's faith and his expectation that out of this atrocity, God would bring good. So in verse, 15, in verse 5, Abraham says to his servants, here's a glimpse of his faith, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Not I will come back to you, but we will come back to you. Me and Isaac, we'll come back. Or in verse 7, Isaac asks, well, the wood and the fire are here, but where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Where's the sacrifice? God will provide who will come back? We'll come back to you, both of us, me and him. Abraham knew that he and Isaac would return and that God would provide. How did he know that? The writer of the Hebrews helps us to understand how Abraham could have such confidence. He says in Hebrews eleven seventeen, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham, here it is, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham knew that God was the creator of the world, that God had the power of life and death, and that God had promised that through Isaac's descendants, God would bless the world. And so Abraham thought to himself, well, I know that God can do it. I know that God can raise the dead. I know that he has the power to do it. He believed in the resurrection power of God and in the certainty of God's promises. I think that's remarkable. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead. Abraham hadn't seen that. We've seen the resurrection power of God at work. But Abraham hadn't. All he had to go on was his knowledge of who God was and his logic. God's powerful. He created this world. He sustains this world. If he made it, he can remake it again. 
Abraham shows us what it looks like to trust God. Abraham knows that he can give up everything. He can give up everything. And that on the other side of sacrifice is blessing. You lose your job and you say, I know that God will provide. A close friend dies without turning to Christ and you say, I know that the judge of all the earth will do right. A business contract falls through, the stock market collapses and overnight half of your retirement savings are wiped away. A child walks away from the faith, your spouse leaves you for somebody else. You're diagnosed with a crippling lifelong condition. A friend loses a baby. And you say, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in, my God, in God my Saviour. You say, I don't know what God is doing. But I know that whatever he's doing, it's good. And I know that on the other side of sacrifice is blessing. And I know that God can turn death into life, weakness into strength, that he can bring about good from evil. Because that's the message of the cross, isn't it? The most profound human evil. Human beings judging God. We don't like you, you're not God. And we're going to kill you because we don't like you. Human beings judging God and in that same moment, God in his mercy judging and condemning our human sin and rejecting God. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because God is good, because God is powerful, powerful over life and death, because God keeps his word, we know that on the other side of sacrifice and suffering is blessing. We know that whatever God takes away, what he'll give us is always so much greater. Abraham knew that. And so he could give God everything and trust that he wouldn't be worse off. Well, God not only tests Abraham, and Abraham not only shows himself to trust God, God also provides. Abraham has followed through on everything that God has called him to do. He's lived by faith. 
But at the very moment that he's about to plunge the knife into his own son, God calls out to him in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything because now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you fear me because you've not withheld from me your only son. God says, or he doesn't say, sorry, don't do it. Don't be silly. I don't need sacrifice. He doesn't say that. Instead, what God does is to provide another sacrifice, a different one, one instead of Abraham's own son. This story isn't about the fact that sacrifice is brutal and unnecessary, that we don't need it, that God doesn't, doesn't need it. What this story is about is that God will provide the sacrifice. And as we discover as the Bible goes along, as you and I know... God's ultimate provision is not in rams and bulls and goats and, and, and sacrifices like that, but it's God's own son, Jesus. Twice in this chapter we get that phrase repeated, your only son, your son, your only son. And that same phrase, that same expression is taken up in the New Testament to, to talk about Jesus. Think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave what? His one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is God's one and only son, but God gave him up for us. Where Isaac was led up the mountain by his father, Jesus was led up the mountain by his father, by his father's will, not my will, but yours, he said. Where Isaac went without knowing, Jesus went willingly. He knew what faced him. Where Isaac carried the timber for the sacrifice up the mountain on his own back, Jesus carried the cross on his own back, the means of his own execution. But where God stayed Abraham's hand to rescue Abraham's son. God didn't do the same thing with Jesus. God didn't stop it. If there's any other way, Jesus said, if there's another way, there wasn't another way. There's no other way. If there was another way, surely God would have found it. It's incredible to think that the kindness that God showed to Abraham in sparing his son was not a kindness that God showed to himself. Isn't that remarkable? We expect, to be, we expect God to be so kind to us. And yet he doesn't show himself that same kindness but gives up his own son that we should be saved. Why should our sons be saved and not God's? Why should we be spared and not Jesus? Jesus was innocent and we're not. No, God doesn't ask us to trust him and then not deliver. He doesn't ask us to give up everything and then leave us with nothing, leave us empty-handed. He asks us to give up everything and then fills our hands with something better, with himself. 
at the cost of his own son. He provides more generously and more compassionately than we can ever imagine. Well, what's the message of Genesis chapter 22? The message is this, that God is a providing God. He provided his own son as a means of our deliverance. And here's the question. Will you trust him enough to provide, to give up everything and to follow him? And having trusted him once, will you keep trusting him? Yes, I know that today that God will still provide. And I know that tomorrow that God will still provide. Because God is a testing God. But more importantly, God is a providing God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to confess that our hearts are so easily snatched up by other things. That we so easily live with other allegiances. Uh, Allegiances to people, allegiances to things, Allegiances to careers, allegiances to dreams, allegiances to to everything under the sun. Oh God, forgive us and grant it that our only allegiance might be to you, the true and living God who made us and sustains us. The true and living God who we have rejected. But who in your great compassion sent your only son to enter the agony and the misery of our world. A world marred by our own rebellion. You sent your own son into our world to triumph on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to rise from the dead and conquer death and sin and judgment. Lord God, we ask that you would enable us to believe that. And as you test our faith, Lord, Help it to be purified and proven to be genuine to the glory of your great name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.